so as we, as we, uh, we get started, I, I want to start by just reading a passage of scripture for you from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. So the author of Hebrews uh, says, says this, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works and not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Maybe as I've said, we're going to be talking about the idea of Christ as the victor. We read that passage and you're kind of like, I, okay, I don't know what that has to do. Okay, I'm supposed to go to church. Great. What does that have to do with, with anything? But here's the thing. What if, what if a seemingly mundane Sunday morning, just like this, a Sunday morning church service is one of the most profoundly punk rock rebellious things that we could do? I know it doesn't seem like it, other than the fact that nobody else is doing it, really. I mean, I guess. Maybe it doesn't feel that way to you, but what if church were not just like some gathering, maybe that's boring sometimes, (laughs) maybe life-giving, but what if it's not just a, a gathering, but a profound statement about the victory of God over sin, and over death. And it is a, it is a place of, of declaration, declaring what Jesus has done, declaring to the world and to the powers of this world the victory of Jesus Christ. And it is a place where we prepare for battle. What if that's what church was? What if that was our paradigm? It wasn't just a nice place to come and to maybe leave with a nice feeling, but it was more than that. That it actually declared to a watching world of the victory of Christ. And not just declared to it, but witnessed and testified by the way that we gather together, by the way that we love each other, that Christ has been victorious. Guys, this, I think, is the vision of the church. This, I think, is the purpose of the church. But I'm going to leave it there, and we're going to come back to that. We're going to unpack that. But first, I want us to kind of begin to walk through this this metaphor. And maybe it'll begin after a while to become clear why I think something like church is so profound. Why it's not just something like an optional extra that we add to our lives, but a vital part of not just our individual spiritual lives, but even a vital part of what Christ is doing in the world. I don't just stand up here for fun. I don't come to church every Sunday just for fun, but because I believe in the power of the church, because I believe in the sovereignty and power of Christ. And so, as I said, we've been going through a series looking at all the different metaphors. And even there, a couple of, you know, every time at least that I've, I've spoken, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I didn't really think this through when we were dividing up who was preaching on what, but it seems like every single one of, of my Sundays actually have a similar uh, theme 
to them. I don't know if like God's trying to tell me something or, or what, you know, like, but, but again, wasn't thought through, wasn't on purpose, but it, but it kind of has fallen that way in that every one of these sermons really in, in a lot of ways has, has had this sort of same theme when you're asking the questions like, what is the problem? What is the solution? Of course, the solution is always Jesus, but like, but right. Um, but like, but you know, when asking that, like, what is the problem? What is the solution? How does it change the way I live? In many ways, a lot of it, it, it there's similar, similar um, themes. And all of these metaphors, and we said this from the beginning, they all kind of stack onto each other or sometimes overlap with each other. See it more like a giant Venn diagram with Jesus in the middle, right? This is like how all, all of these metaphors begin to work together. And so even there, so in, when we talked about a couple weeks ago, the ransom uh, metaphor, or, or even the first week, the Passover and, and Exodus metaphor. They help us to see how you and I are held captive to an enemy, right? In those weeks, we talked about the idea of sin as a force, right? That there is sin, sin is law-breaking, sin is lawlessness, right? So we went through, and, and if, you, if you want, like, I'm not going to unpack it all again, but if you want, you can go back and listen to these sermons on our podcast, or even, like, on Facebook, like, they're there, like, uh, you can go back and watch and, and listen to these, but we talked about that basically the Bible sees sin in three main ways. Sin is law-breaking, right? And that's the way we typically think, right? right? Sin is doing bad things, or things that I shouldn't do, or, or whatever, right? We tend to think of it that way. Um, the idea is missing the mark of true humanness, that when we fail to live as God has called us to be, we fail to be who we really are in Christ, right? Okay, so we talked about that idea of, of sin as, uh, as lawlessness, or as law-breaking, but then we talked about the idea then that sin is also uh, idolatry, right? It's worshiping things that aren't God. It's worshiping other things, anything that isn't God. And our hearts are like, you know, as Calvin says, idol factories. They chase after all these things, looking for peace, trying to find peace in all the wrong places when really Jesus is the only one who satisfies. But that's one of the main ways the Bible looks at sin. But another way is as a force. That sin is a force of evil in this world that coerces people into idolatry, that coerces people into law-breaking, that sin is a force that seeks to devour you, that sin creates systems of injustice in this world that hold people down, that take people captive, that leave people thinking this is the only way to live, right? Because we can't see the vision of the goodness of God, the gospel and the world in which God wants for all of us. And so we, we talked about this idea of sin as a force. That we're held captive to an enemy by an enemy that is too strong for you and I to break free. We will never be able to break the chains of oppression that hold us down on our own. We need someone to break them for us. We need deliverance. Deliverance from a source more powerful than ourselves, but also more powerful than the one that holds us in bondage. And then we looked at the, you know, going back to the judgment metaphor last week. It helps us to see that injustice will be judged, that sin will be judged, and that actually this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Rather, justice is an attribute of who God is. God is just. And God is loving. Those are attributes of God and wrath 
comes out of those things. But it helps us to see that there will be judgment for those who mar God's good creation with injustice, through pride and selfishness and greed and immorality and all kinds of other sin, right? Paul uses that phrase, and anything like this in Galatians chapter 5. It's judgment against individuals. It's judgment against systems of oppression. It's judgment against the entire cosmos that has bent itself out of shape and away from God. The perverted structures and inhumane systems of our world. But the problem is with that metaphor, that justice metaphor, because it tends to be one of the main ones uh, that we focus on, is that it's too reductive on its own. And even each metaphor on its own, that, it's a problem. If we only focus on one of the metaphors, we're going to miss the whole big picture. And that's kind of the theme, I think, of, this, of the painting, right? Is the idea that they're all connected, they're all interwoven. And so we need a metaphor that helps us to see the fact that there is an enemy that must be defeated and that there is a war to be fought. And that metaphor is Christus Victor, the idea of Christ as Victor. Now guys, with each one of these metaphors, we could do an entire biblical theology on every single one of them, and it would take a long time, and it might even be a really worthwhile exercise. I'm not saying it wouldn't, but it's not necessarily what we're looking for in a sermon, right? When it comes to a sermon, we just kind of have to pick a theme and run with it. Or pick, a, you know, pick a, a, a piece of it and run with it. And so that's what we're doing this morning. And so I hope even the previous sermons have kind of helped um, to kind of fill out this, this idea. But this idea that Christ is the victor is one of the main metaphors, one of the main driving metaphors that we see throughout Scripture. Now, I think a good place to start with this metaphor, is in Philippians. So if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and I will put it up on the screen, but it's never a substitute for just looking it up on your own if you can. Philippians is a little book. I know it can be maybe hard to find sometimes, but Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Paul, in, this, in these verses whether he's the original author or whether he's taking an, a, a hymn or, or a statement of the early church and applying it into, into his letter, we don't know. Uh, maybe he was a magnificent poet, I don't know. But it is this beautiful piece of poetry that gives us a picture into who Jesus is. And here's what Paul writes. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And it would be very, very sad if it all just kind of stopped there. It might be a nice, it might give us a, an idea that maybe Jesus is a good example to follow or something, but Paul continues and he says, Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue will confess 
on earth and under the earth, and sorry, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is where we start. Jesus is Lord. Now here's the thing about that. If Jesus is Lord, then that means nobody else is. If Jesus is the Lord over all creation, then that means nobody else is. That means there is no equal, there is no rival. Jesus is the one that stands up above everything else. Right? When we start talking about Jesus in battle with Satan, we start talking about the powers of this world, this is not an equal fight. This is not yin and yang or whatever, yin and yang, whatever that is. It is not that. It is not like, you know, there is, you know, equal battling each other. It is, there is one supreme God over all creation. And it is Jesus subduing that creation whether that created being be in the spiritual world, and we call him Satan, the tempter, or whether that be systems of injustice that his, the people that he's created have, have formed. He stands above all of it. This proclamation made by Paul is a statement, though, of faith and of hope. Because I think it is not always obvious in our world, right? It'd be really easy to be like, well, Stephen, like, that's nice to say, you know, it was good of Paul to write that, except look at our world. And this is where we begin to get into this idea, and I think Luke touched on it before, of the idea of the already but not yet side of the kingdom. That Jesus has come and won the decisive victory on the cross. That what seemed like foolishness to men, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is actually the wisdom of God, that God knew exactly what He was doing. But it is not always obvious in our world. We live in faith and we live in hope. Now, we're going to take a diversion, but this diversion is a planned one and it is on purpose. It's not a whim on, you know, okay. And we're going to talk about the word apocalypse. What a fun word to talk about in church, right? Because we all probably have our preconceived notions about apocalypse. Okay, because here's, here's the thing. When we start talking about this idea of Christ as the victor, even, even the painting here that we have on our wall that Nick painted comes from the book of Revelation. Or, as some would call it, the apocalypse of John. All right, and so we start getting into this crazy battle imagery, war imagery, all of this kind of stuff. But what we have to understand is it is a way of talking about a reality that is hard for us to understand. And so the Bible uses the word, the Greek word, apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. So when you hear the word apocalypse, I'm just curious, what do you think of? I mean, feel free. Like, uh, it's, 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 there's no wrong answer here. Like, it's not. Again, I'm not. I'm not planning on body slamming anybody here. Like, that's the end. the end. Okay, yeah, the end times, right? When we start talking about you, know, the apocalypse is coming. All right, you know, or like apocalypse now, right? That's a movie, right? We start. We start thinking of like the end, or you know, apocalypse now. I suppose like cataclysmic events, right? Anybody else? Anything to think of when they start thinking of of, of the word apocalypse?
All right, all right. One of those mornings. Okay. <laughs> Daylight savings time. Yeah, this morning with me in your house may have been some sort of apocalyptic moment. Um, <laughs> uh, destruction. Yes. See, guys, I think this, this is like the frame that we have in our mind when we start thinking of apocalypse. Even when I looked it up in the dictionary, okay, right? I looked up the dictionary definition and it talks about like the idea of like a cataclysmic event or a destructive event or like some sort of like ending event or a catastrophic thing that happens. So, that, so even there, when we start using that word apocalyptic, we tend to think of it in the same way that the Oxford Dictionary thinks of it and actually not the way the Bible thinks of it. So what I'm saying is all of our thoughts on the word apocalypse are not wrong, okay? Because in modern English, that has, that's kind of what the words have come to mean, what the word has come to mean. But when we, when, when we come to the Bible and we come to this Greek word apocalypsis, here's what we find. At the root, it means disclosure. It means unveiling. It means revelation. So even there, when we say the, like the book of Revelation, right? You can say the Apocalypsis of John, Johannan, or whatever. Like, you know, if we're, we're going to get Greek here. It is an unveiling. So what, what is this unveiling? Right? How many of you guys have seen The Wizard of Oz? Right? What happens in The Wizard of Oz? Like, what's the big moment in The Wizard of Oz? Right? They get to the wizard, and, and what happens? Turns out he's not all that great, right? It's just a guy behind a curtain pulling, pulling some strings and speaking into a big megaphone, right? And it's this moment where what they thought was grand and incredible and amazing actually turns out to be pretty mundane and fake. Now, when we read Apocalypse in the Bible, let's flip that around. Because our world wants us to look at it and say, look, everything is mundane, everything is just fine, it's all a very, you know, systems and science and all of that can give us all the answers that we need. And what, what the Bible says in, apocalypt, in, in apocalyptic literature, what it's doing is it's tearing back the curtain and saying, hold on just a second, there's a whole lot more you can't see going on in this world. You don't understand going on in this world. It is not just purely, you know, purely everything running in a mechanistic way, but actually there is real spiritual evil behind the curtain and not just spiritual evil. There is spiritual good. There are angels and there is, there is the heavenly father up above who is sovereign over all creation. And there is a war going on and he's going to set all things right. This is the book of revelation, right? And it's not just the book of Revelation. We find this idea of apocalypse all over. This idea of an unveiling of the curtain being pulled back so that we get a glimpse of what the world is actually like. And it's weird and it's wild, isn't it? How many of you guys have read the book of Revelation and been like, Phew, that's uh, hmm, okay. I'm just going to walk away from that for, for now. Right? Because it's weird and it's wild and it's crazy. But here's the thing. John is trying to give us a picture into this world that we don't even know exists or think about on a regular basis and to say there is something going on deeper and bigger than we even thought. <coughs> Excuse me. It is a peeling back of the curtain. It's an unveiling. And so we could even say that Jesus in the incarnation was an apocalypse. 
When Jesus came to the world, when he was unveiled or revealed to the world, he did not arrive, though, in neutral territory. And this is what the Bible wants to help us see, wants to unveil for us that when Jesus came, it was not neutral territory. The enemy already had control and Jesus entered into enemy territory. There, were already, there was already an occupying force. Satan and his army. And they had to be driven off. They had to be defeated and driven out. And so this metaphor of Christus Victor, of Christ the Victor, is apocalyptic because it reveals a spiritual battle that we don't see. But it also reveals to us the true nature of Jesus Christ, of who he is. So we see that there are powers at work in this world that are sinful. Just to kind of summarize, all right, this is, this is our summary statement of everything we've just been over. That the powers at work in this world are sinful and evil, and they seek to destroy God's good world. They hold the world captive and keep creation in bondage and groaning for release and renewal. That that is the world in which we live. And so as Christians, we hold this tension that we believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus has conquered sin and has conquered death. And yet we also hold in tension the fact that the world is not yet what it is supposed to be, that creation still longs and groans for the final day of renewal. But let's again come back to the idea of, of asking that question. Then we, we diagnose the problem. What is the solution? And I don't think we need to spend too terribly long on this because I think we've already, uh, I think I've already said it a few times uh, now. But as we start talking about the solution, sorry, I've got to shuffle things around here. I need a bigger stand. Um, we see this. Jesus' life matters. Because in his life, we see him doing battle with the powers of the world. There are other reasons why Jesus' life matters. Okay, but, like, but let's just say this. If your view of what Jesus accomplished on the cross only needs Jesus to be born and Jesus to be, de to, to be dead and then to rise again and doesn't need that kind of 33 years in the middle, it is a deficient view of what Jesus came to accomplish. Because here's the thing we start to see is that we see Jesus... Right? If we unveil, if we think about this unveiling for a moment, and we think about the fact that Jesus entered enemy territory, occupied territory, territory that was ruled by those who seek death and destruction, who seek to separate people, who seek to cause harm, to kill, and to destroy, then we begin to see Jesus' ministry in a different light. Because what did Jesus do over and over in his ministry. He healed the sick. Was sickness originally a part of God's good world? No. I don't know what just happened there. He wants me to put in a password. Okay. <laughs> Let me just back up for a second. Maybe we needed that. Maybe we just need to take a deep breath, right? All right. 
But here's the thing. We're talking about Jesus' ministry. Here's what we see. We see Jesus healing the sick. Sickness was not originally a part of God's good world. We see Jesus casting out demons. Why? Because God's good world, humans were never meant to be oppressed by evil, controlled by evil, tormented by evil in God's good world. We see Jesus raising the dead. Because death was never meant to be a part of God's good world. And so what we see Jesus doing over and over throughout his ministry is battling the powers of this world of sin and of evil and of death and overturning it every single time. Everywhere Jesus went, he brought the world as it was meant to be with him. He healed brokenness. He gave worth and dignity to people who had none. He gave value to people who had none. Who people who felt like and who were literally on the bottom rung of society. Jesus gave peace to. Those who were tormented by evil. Jesus gave peace. Those who were physically disabled. Jesus gave peace. Those who were tormented and who were dead. Jesus gave life. This is what we see in Jesus. He brought shalom and undid the brokenness of our world. And so therefore, I don't think it's a stretch then when we come to Jesus' death to begin to see Jesus' death as more than just a death. But rather to see Jesus once again battling the powers of this world. Only this time, they thought they had won. This time they were convinced that they had won. Every other time they did battle with Jesus, they couldn't win. Ah, but this time, somehow weirdly, Jesus goes to the cross passively. Like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53 says. And that should have probably been their first clue. That maybe, maybe this isn't what they thought it was. But obviously the powers of this world did not see that. And Jesus passively submitted to the evil of men, but more than just the evil of men, the evil of the spiritual powers at work in this world and gave his life for you and for me. This is not just a skirmish. This is the decisive battle. And so we find that the cross and the resurrection become the definitive apocalypse of God. The, play, the cross is that place where the decisive battle between Christ and sin took place, between Christ and evil took place, between Christ and Satan, where the powers of Satan brought their full brunt, their full force of strength to the attack. And Jesus let him do it. And if that's where things ended, again, it might be a really nice lesson about how to be a good person or something like that. But this metaphor helps us to see, to reveal that there was something so much bigger going on. Because when Jesus 
died. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. He became our sacrifice, as we've talked about, but he also became the one who crushed death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? It is no longer there because Christ is standing on top of the grave, victorious over it. The cross is the place where this decisive battle happened, where where sin brought the brunt of its attack, but where it was defeated. It is the place, then, of coronation. Where Jesus receives a crown of thorns. Where men proclaim, surely this man is the Son of God. And where Jesus, I think, and I love this, on the cross. Right? Sometimes maybe we can gloss over when Jesus says to the man, today you will be with me in paradise. You guys, this is a broken sinful man next to Jesus on the cross. A man who, who had been evil and wicked. He was there for a reason, right? He says, I deserve to be here. Somebody who should have been so firmly in the clutches of the evil of this world. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. That is the power and the control of our God, of Jesus Christ. He can look at a man and just say, that's it. That has no power or control over you. I am the one who gets to dictate where you go. And today you will be with me in paradise. That is the power of Jesus, guys. This is our God. Revelation 1.5 says, He is the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the world. All glory to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding His blood. This is our God, guys. The resurrection shows the way Christ holds the power over that which for us is invincible. It is the defeat which renders all other, renders certain all other defeats. It is the ultimate revealer of who Christ is and the affirmation of all he has spoken. It is why, in a world of brokenness, there is hope. There is hope. And we see this picture. This is what I think we need to understand about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written to give people hope. Right? We tend to do all kinds of crazy things with the book. Right? And I'm not going to debate on what exactly is always right about everything in the book of Revelation. Okay? I'm not prepared to wade into that discussion. But what I will say is the overarching reason the book of Revelation was written was it was given to people in the first century who probably like you and I struggle sometimes to see how Jesus is victorious. Who struggle to see amidst the evil and the suffering in this world how God is in control. And so the book of Revelation becomes this unveiling that shows us in sometimes really strange, sometimes really gory details. Spoken in all kinds of metaphor and what's literal and what's metaphorical. We could debate all day and people have for a very long time. We're not going to get into that. But just to say there's so much imagery in the book of Revelation that helps us to imagine and to see that Christ will be and is victorious 
over sin and death. And so we come to Revelation 19. And as we read Revelation 19, uh, 11 to 16, we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Mind you, the battle has not started yet, and I think this is an important detail. I'm just, we're going to stop here for a second. His robe is dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? It is his own. The blood of Jesus. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on a white horse. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written the title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. I want you to imagine for a moment, for many of us who sit in very comfortable lives, how that reads to somebody who's been struck down That person who's been oppressed their whole lives, who's lived at the bottom of society, under the thumb of those who have. Because this is good news. Jesus will return. And in verses 19 to 21, we read, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the horse. Who is the victor? Christ is the victor. The word of God, the sword that comes out of his mouth. Again, we're dealing in imagery. Is there literally like just a sword? Like, no. But you understand, this is the powerful imagery of the word of God. That Jesus defeats Satan. Once and for all, through the power of his word. And this changes the way that we live. So we're coming down. We're at, we're at, the, we're at the back quarter of the sermon here. I'm just just giving you context where we're at. All right? So we can come into the practical side of this. Asking that question, if this is the reality, how does it change the way we live? One of the things that has struck me over and over as I read Paul's letters, particularly Ephesians and Colossians, and then obviously we read Philippians there, how this is a huge theme for Paul. This idea is a huge thing for Paul that he writes about often. But he writes about it, and I think he comes at it at an angle that maybe is a bit unexpected. And so I thought it would be good for us just to kind of walk through how Paul sees this in the book of Ephesians. I'm not going to preach the whole book of Ephesians. I told you we were in the back quarter, so just breathe easy here. All right? But we're going to fly through just a couple of things. So hopefully, maybe then we'll begin to put some meat on the bones here on what Paul says 
Jesus has accomplished through his death. I said earlier that Paul's proclamation that Jesus is Lord is not always obvious in our world. Yet there is an outpost where it should be obvious. And that's the church. The church is the place where people of all backgrounds, ethnicities, race, and gender gather together in unity to demonstrate to the world that the powers have lost their power. You know, before I ask the question, what if church was the place that is so rebellious in our world because it proclaims that there is a different king, that the one true king is Jesus? What if church was more than just gathering together to find maybe a, a good feeling or an encouraging word? But what if it was a profound statement about the victory of God over sin? This is exactly what I think we see in Paul. So in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, here's what we read. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Do you see it? Do you see what he's saying there? In the opening, you know, the, the opening firings of his letter here, he says something so profound. Jesus is the victor over the powers of evil. That he stands over them far above any ruler or authority or power. And he says something, I think, really profound here. Not only in this world, but in, but in the one to come. Both. He has a foot standing over both the rulers of this world, in this world right now, the physical ones we can see, but also the spiritual ones in this world. And then he says that Jesus has done this for the benefit of the church. And as we read on in 2, 1 to 7, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the, in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy that He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all He has done 
for us who are united with Christ. We have been saved. Not just from something, but into something. We have been saved by God's grace and united with Christ Jesus. Now, I told you we'd be flying. I'm not going to read any more of one and two. We're going to go to three. And I want you to catch this. In the light of everything that we've talked about so far, in the light of everything that we've read so far in Paul, in Paul and in Ephesians, as we read verses 10 to 11 of chapter 3, he says this, and talking about all that Christ has accomplished, he says, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear that. When we meet together, we declare to the powers of this world that they will not win. The powers of this world seek to divide people, to, to separate people, to cause division, to bring death. And as a church, we come together. People from all over the world. Like This is one of the things I love about our church. People from all over the world. Different genders, different, ethnicity, different ethnicities. Different race. And we are all united in Jesus. We're all united in Jesus. Guys, where else in the world do you find that? I would argue nowhere. And the church is not perfect. In fact, the church, I, I, I can certainly say our church at some point will probably offend you. Someone in the church will offend you. And this is where we get to show God's incredible grace to one another. All right? I'm not saying the church is perfect, but where else do you see this? I once heard that there was a study done um, at UCC by somebody who was a postdoctoral study. And I, I heard this in, a, in somebody else speaking. Um, and I've, I haven't honestly been able to find the, the reference. But I trust the person who said it. I assume, I assume it's true. But that in, the, in, the, in the doctoral thesis, what they found was that the only place in Ireland where the new Ireland truly functioned in a way that was healthy and life-giving was the church. That is a testimony to the world around us of the power of Jesus, of what Jesus has accomplished at the cross, not just to our neighbors, not just to our friends, but as Paul says here, to the powers at work in this world that they will not win, that they will not be victorious, that Jesus will conquer. As we turn to chapter 6, we could preach a whole sermon talking about the uh, whole armor of God. Right? I mean, that's the thing. We're, 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 we're going really fast here. But in verses 10 to 18, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Hear that. It doesn't just say you. Right? Maybe your Bible actually says you there, but just know it's plural in the Greek. Like it's, it's like ye. Right? Okay? That's why the New Living translates that we. Okay? For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There will be opposition. There will be opposition. 
But therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. And if, just think back to what we just read in Revelation. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Guys, this is not some command to physically take up weapons and arms and to convert by the sword. The sword that we use is the sword of God's Word. We share the goodness and the truth of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross And we allow that to defeat the powers in this world. There is power in Jesus. Finally, in verse 18, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Jesus saves us from the powers of sin. We're brought from death to life and into the family of God. The world around us may still be marred by sin and death and evil, but Jesus will return to complete what he has rendered certain. By living as his people in the world, we are proclaiming to the watching world, both physical and spiritual, that sin will not win, and that Christ will have the final word. In Christ, the powers have lost their power. And that's what this metaphor teaches us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, of what he accomplished on the cross.